0: Uh, this is a great passage this morning. It's probably been with you in really difficult times of suffering. So I don't know if you're coming here this morning where your suffering is raw, where this is fresh, and where this word may sting a little bit like salt in a fresh wound, or if this is helping you to prepare for suffering that is coming. Uh, but I want to know that I've been praying. I want you to know that I've been praying for you this week as we prepare to open up this great passage in Romans chapter eight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. You can turn to Romans chapter 8. It's near the end of the Bible. You can work your way back from the end if you're unfamiliar with God's Word. And let me pray, and well, let's turn to it together. Father, what, what a great joy it is to know that we are yours, not because we've performed correctly, but because we've been joined to Christ through faith. And just as you've committed to set your loving heart upon us, you have in the same way committed to finish the work that you began in us. And so all who sit here this morning who have trusted Christ, who have been assured that their right standing before you is complete in Him. We have the wonderful promise of being perfected in your sight, no matter what. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us as we open up your word, you would strengthen us, you would help us to see Christ, that you would lift Him up. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Suffering is not... The occasional pothole on the otherwise smooth, comfortable highway of life. That's not suffering. Suffering is the highway itself. It's a highway under construction, raw, and riddled with uncomfortable obstacles. The lives that we live are filled with hardship, with pain points, with unmet desires, and with persistent struggles. And as one of your elders, I know, having seen enough of your pain, to know that I don't have to do much to convince you of the truth of those statements. Pain isn't the occasional interruption in an otherwise comfortable, easy life. Pain is the context within which we worship God and proclaim Christ and love our neighbors. We try to minimize pain and to maximize pleasure, but we are unsuccessful. Advanced degrees, sensible financial planning, career successes, thoughtful diet and exercise, a home in the right neighborhood, solid health insurance, a diverse professional network, none of these things keep us safe. We are frighteningly vulnerable, and we all know it. This passage in Romans chapter 8 tells us that God, not that God will keep us from trouble, but that God will lead us through trouble safely home. He promises to lead us through the trial, not keep us from the trial. And He's committed to lead us through the intensity of present suffering into the wonder of future glory that we began to look at last week. This passage in Romans chapter 8 puts a flashlight in our hands and tells us what God is doing in the midst of pain. It urges us to trust God. It reminds us that Jesus' work brought us into an unbreakable relationship with God. You will not slip through the cracks. If you belong to Him, then He will bring you safely home. We are His children. We are co-heirs with Christ. And God will bring His children through suffering and safely home. And there's two ways we see him do that this morning. The first is the Holy Spirit prays for us. And the prayers of the Spirit are part of what God uses to bring his people safely home. Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul says... Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we should pray for, but the Spirit Himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, likewise pushes us backwards in Paul's argument in Romans 8. He's just said in the passage we looked at last week, he's ended with the thought that hope is the thing that helps us bridge from present suffering to future glory. Hope is what sustains us. It's a tool. It's medicine. It helps us bridge the gap between our current groaning and our future glory. And the Spirit, Paul says, helps to lock in that hope and make it certain. But there are more resources available to God's children in the middle of suffering. And the first one is the Spirit's prayers. The Spirit helps us in our weakness And we should be asking the question, what is the weakness that Paul has in mind? How exactly are we weak? Is it the present groaning that we have experienced that he's brought before us last week? Or is it something different? Well, Paul says that we're weak because we don't know how to pray in the middle of suffering. So it's really both, but the the point of this, the emphasis of this seems to be on we don't know how to pray as we should when we're in the middle of present suffering, When we're under strain, we don't always know how to pray because we aren't exactly sure what God is doing. We don't know how God is leading. We don't know how He's working. We don't know what His will is totally in the midst of that suffering. When the pregnancy test is negative or when the cancer returns or when the job is lost, when the friend betrays us, when the parent remains disinterested in us, the devastation of those moments can leave us so weak that we don't know exactly how to even pray. We're not sure in those moments of pain what God's will is. So how does Paul say the Spirit helps us in our weakness? The Spirit helps in that weak moment by groaning, by praying for us with groaning and sighing that's too deep for words. Paul says that God's Spirit sees us tossed about by heaving seas, He sees our grief, our grief that may be so paralyzing that we can't even speak. No matter, the Spirit speaks on our behalf. The Spirit lifts up His voice to the Father on our behalf. Deep groaning and sighing flow from the Holy Spirit's heart. He carries our anguish up to the Father. We weep in fear and sadness, or we lay silent in disappointment, or we turn away in discouragement. But the Spirit knows our heart. The Spirit knows our circumstances. The Spirit knows the length of the trial and the depth of the pain that we're facing. And He stands before God the Father and cries out on our behalf. He brings the groaning of our heart to the Father. Brothers and sisters, we're not alone. The Spirit sits with you in the doctor's office. He sits with you when you wake in the middle of the night trying to fend off a panic attack. He stands with you when someone in authority berates you unjustly. The Spirit dwells with us. He he lives with us. He's with us. He helps us to believe the promises of God's Word. Jesus promises us this in John 14, and Paul urges us to open our eyes and to look at it. The Spirit helps Psalm 121 Be the reality. God will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. We lay down and sleep at the end of the night. The Spirit does not slumber. The Spirit will not let our foot be moved. And we'll see what that means in a moment. It's not just that the Holy Spirit prays with us, though. The Spirit prays with us in a way that is effective. His prayers work. God answers the Holy Spirit's prayers. Look at verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is typically dense from the Apostle Paul. But here's what he's saying. The one who searches hearts here, God the Father knows what is in the mind of God the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit knows us, dwells with us, sees our pain, and prays on our behalf, and knows the will of the Father. And the Father, knowing the mind of the Spirit, hears those prayers and answers them. The Father and the Spirit are working together in our suffering. The Spirit's prayers are always answered because the Spirit knows what we don't. The Spirit knows with specificity exactly the thousand ways that God is planning to use that suffering for our good, for His glory, for the good of our neighbor. We are weak because we don't pray as we should, or we don't pray as we can. We don't have the ability to know what the Spirit knows in our circumstances, but the Spirit is our help in weakness. He always prays according to God's will, which advances the ball down the field. When I say that the Spirit prays us safely home, I mean that the Spirit takes us in the middle of suffering, prays for the Lord's will to work itself out in our lives, and moves us toward the purposes for which God saved us, and we'll see in a moment, that's conformity to Christ. The Spirit is aiding the Father's work in praying us down the field, up the ladder toward future glory. And he can do this because the Spirit knows our pain and God's plan. You can put that over verses 26 and 27. The Spirit knows our pain. He knows God's plan. And that's what allows him to pray us safely home. So when we're flat on the floor with no words to describe the agony and no clue where God is taking us, the Spirit groans on our behalf and the Father answers those prayers. J.I. Packer writes that the Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. He fixes our prayers on the way up, not because our prayers are broken, but because our prayers are necessarily limited by the fact that we're human. But God the Spirit has no such limitations. We are at home, we're headed home, and the Spirit dwells with us on the journey, praying us safely home. Now, verses 28 through 30, we see the Father's part of this. The Father shepherds us safely home. In God's economy, pain can be a help, not an obstacle, to a deep friendship with God. We often view pain in our lives as an interruption or an obstacle, but pain can also be uncharted entry into friendship with God. Communion, fellowship, friendship with God. What if we cultivated a heart that humbly receives the suffering that God brings and allows? Humbly receiving because we are confident in his love. Puritan John Flavel wrote this, you lie too near to God's heart for him to hurt you. You lie too near to God's heart for him to hurt you. We can be confident in God's love in suffering. We can also be confident of His power, knowing that He has the power to prevent whatever has come into our lives. He has the power to protect us from it. He hasn't used His power that way. So we're confident of His power to prevent it if it was best for us. We are confident of His power to bring us through it. We're also confident of His wisdom, convinced that God is wise enough to orchestrate, and to bring those circumstances around, to employ pain purposefully. Church, we have a Father who will shepherd us through present suffering and lead us safely home. Look at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... We know that all things work together for good. All things is all the present suffering from verse 18 that makes us groan and long for glory. All the myriad of trials and suffering that mark this present time. All things, God works together for good. That means that no trial in your life is wasted. We have never been more safe and secure than in the arms of this shepherd. You are not at the whim of your circumstances. You are not at the mercy of other people. You stand, as John Piper wrote, inside the fortress of Romans 8.28. You stand inside the fortress of Romans 8.28 knowing that all things happening around you and to you, God will work them together for your good. From minor disappointment to massive discouragement to grievous despair to the sting of death itself, God promises to redeem every painful point of suffering. Not one of them is lost. The captain is awake and competently steering the ship of your life. But as we'll see in a moment, the good that God is working toward is not temporary comfort. If that's the good you're looking for in your circumstances, you may look in vain. He's not working toward temporary comfort, but conformity to Christ. But before we move there, let's take stock of the fact that this promise, being inside the fortress of Romans 8.28, having God's assurance that all things are working together for good, that's a promise for God's children. This is a guarantee for those who love God. And remember, we love God because He first loved us. This is a guarantee for all who are called according to God's purposes, those who have died to themselves, those who are following Christ, believers, servants, disciples, repenters, followers, that marks God's children. Those outside the fortress have no such comfort when sea billows roll and when the ground beneath our feet opens up. But inside the fortress, we have this promise that God the shepherd will lead us safely home. Look at verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Foreknowledge is simply to know beforehand. It's advanced knowledge, not of what we will do, but of who we are. Advanced knowledge of who we are. God knew us in advance Before. We entered the wombs of our mothers. God foreknew us. For example, Jeremiah 1.5, the prophet writes, or God says to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And this personal promise to Jeremiah Paul generalizes in Romans 8.28 or 8.29. This is true for all of us. We have been foreknown. And those known in advance were predestined. That is marked out in advance. Those foreknown were predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. To look like Christ. To be righteous like Jesus. God knew and loved us in advance and decided to conform us into the image of His Son which means that God knew us before our beginning and God will know us after our end. Foreknowledge, you could easily translate as foreloved. He knew us. He knew you. Before you entered the womb of your mother, He knew you and predestined that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. God's children will be conformed. Sinners are saved to be changed. And that is a work that God takes responsibility for himself, a work that we cooperate with by faith in the power of the Spirit. God works to conform us into the image of Jesus. And the hard things in our lives are not obstacles or distractions from that purpose. God takes the hard things of this life, all the present suffering of verse 18, and he works in the middle of it for our good. And that good is not an easy life. That good is holiness. The Father shepherds us toward holiness. And the hard things in our lives are an accelerant that helps us to find ultimate joy and final satisfaction in Christ, not anything in creation. Look at verse 30. Those whom He predestined, those whom He predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, those whom he foreknew and therefore predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those whom he predestined, marked out in advance, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. People who study the Bible have often called this the golden chain of God's redemptive purposes. A chain of words that help us understand God's intention for his people. Paul has already told us that we are known in advance by God and predestined to look like Christ, and now he says that the people predestined to be holy, Christians, are then called, justified, and glorified. So, with one sentence definitions, let's work through these words. Foreknown, we are known in advance as people who will receive his love. Predestined, we are marked out in advance for salvation and conformity to Christ. Called, we are summoned by name in history, right? He's foreknowing and predestining before history, before we enter the scene. He's calling us in history in a way that causes us to respond with genuine faith. We decide to follow him because of his calling in our lives. We love Because He first loved us. Justified. We are declared righteous by faith. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then glorified. We are perfected in Jesus' image. We are righteous. No more trace of sin. We looked at this last week as we looked into the glory basket to see what God has prepared for those who love Him. A sinless existence. A resurrected body. New heavens and a new earth. With the church gathered from every nation, this glorification is coming. And here, Paul has in mind this perfection in Christ, the reason that we've been predestined. What God wants us to see through Paul's argument is that our glorification is as good as done. As surely as we were foreknown, we will be glorified. There is no way for you to fall through the cracks. There's nothing happening in your life that will defeat God's purposes for you. God is not wringing his hands, wondering how to turn this difficult thing into something good. If God knew us in advance as one who will receive his love, then God will glorify us into the image of Christ. He will shepherd us through every twist and turn and bring us safely home. Now let's bring this all together and apply it. Here are two categories to help us organize our suffering. Here's the first one. You want something you don't have. You want something you don't have. And I have here good things. Something you want, good things that you want that you don't have. Righteous desires. You long for a good friend. Just someone who will pursue you and delight in you. You long for that. Or a spouse to walk through life with. Or children. Or financial stability after decades of falling short each month. You desperately long for a stable job so you can pay your bills and put some money away for later. Or you long to do a job that you love. Or you long to do a job that you like with people you love. Or maybe you have an unreconciled relationship and you have no clue what else to do. You've done all that you know how to do and it's killing you. These are good things, good desires. You want something you don't have and it's good. And you've prayed, but the Lord has not brought it. You want something you don't have. Here's the second category. You have something you don't want. You have something you don't want. You watch one of your children reject Christ and embrace everything that culture is selling right now. Or you're battling persistent depression again. Or you're facing chronic pain or an endless train of medical appointments. Or you never thought marriage was going to be this hard. Or you're neck deep in a grinding, exhausting season of life. Or you had hopes for retirement but you end up just feeling aimless and unproductive. Or maybe there's a sin struggle that you've not been able to get victory over. Lust that keeps you isolated or greed that entices you to grab the latest technology or fashion or car model. Fear of man that makes you freeze up in social situations. Selfishness that keeps you at the center of your world. Or laziness or boredom that sends us scrolling on our iPhone for untold minutes or ours. You have prayed. You've prayed and you've pled, but the Lord has not taken this thing away, and your heart aches under the strain of it. You want something and you don't you don't have you have something you don't want. What have we learned in Romans 8, 26 through 30 that could strengthen us in these moments? First, we've learned that we may not pray as we should because we don't have the visibility to what God is doing in those moments. He may be doing a thousand things and we may know generally, we know he's going to conform us into Christ's image. That much we know. But we don't know specifically how he's working through this. And we've learned this morning that we may not pray as we should. We may plead with him for the good thing that we long for, but he wants to teach us to depend on him without it. We may beg Him to take away the thing we don't want, but He may leave it so that we can glorify Him in the pain. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for relief with faith and expectation that He can answer. He can bring the good thing. He can take away the bad thing. It is not wrong for us to plead with Him in this way. I'm saying that we can't see with clarity all that God wants us to. And that should make our prayers humble humble and dependent the first thing we've learned this morning is that we may not pray as we should the second thing we've learned is that the spirit prays for us the spirit knows our pain knows our longing he sees you bow down there no matter how you feel you are not alone in the furnace you talk to your emotions and you tell them the truth of god's word That the Spirit dwells as a helper with His people, that the Spirit groans on our behalf. He's heard our attempts to pray through our fears. He hears us struggling to pray coherent thoughts, and then He lifts up His voice to the Father on our behalf. He knows our pain, and He knows God's plan, and He prays us safely home. His prayers are effective, which is the third thing we've learned this morning. We may not pray as we should. The Spirit prays for us, and His prayers are effective. We don't know exactly what God wants to do, but the Spirit does. And He prays a prayer aligned with the Father's will, and the Father always answers. The Spirit knows the test results, and He knows the thousand ways that God is going to use those test results. The Spirit's prayers help get us safely home. His prayers catapult us forward in God's plan for our lives. His prayers move us up the ladder toward glory. And what he's praying for ultimately is our conformity to Christ, which you cannot separate from our happiness. Here's the fourth thing we've learned. That this circumstance will work together for good. No matter what happens, benign or malignant, life or death, everything about our circumstance will work together for good. God has committed to that. The Creator has said, this is what will happen Our circumstances have not caught God off guard. He is not scrambling to figure out how to make good out of what has just transpired. He is wisely, powerfully, lovingly shepherding us through pain into glory. He's given us complete confidence in His work on our behalf. Here's the final thing we've learned. The good is not earthly comfort but future glory. The good that God is working toward in our lives is not earthly comfort, it is future glory. God isn't at work keeping you comfortable. God is at work making us holy and our holiness is our happiness. God will accomplish that work just as we've been foreknown, we have been predestined, called, and justified and we will be glorified. We will be conformed to Jesus. We will have a sinless existence we will have a resurrected body. We will be gathered with the church from every nation in a new heavens and a new earth with the Lord. That will happen. But as I said before, I prayed, we have to be careful here because I know there are fresh wounds in this room and we need to be careful when suffering is raw. Dane Ortland, pastor and author, warns us of this. A word of theological explanation. Even a true word of theological explanation to individuals in raw pain exacerbates the pain. A true word of theological explanation to someone who's experiencing raw pain will exacerbate the pain. They don't need us facing them speaking. They need us next to them weeping. In most cases, we must sit with sufferers before we speak to sufferers. And the rawer the pain, the newer the pain, the fresher the pain, the longer we sit. Having said that, we cannot be people that get through pain without theological explanation, or we will not get through pain. We need theological explanation to understand what God is doing. We need the flashlight of Romans 8 to tell us God, what are you doing in this? My heart is broken. What are you doing? Theological explanation is key to developing the faith muscles that we need to endure. We need handles to hold on to in the heaving seas and the hurricane winds of this present suffering. And Romans 8 tells us where to hold on. Romans 8 invites us to trust the Spirit's presence and His power and His prayers. Romans 8 invites us to trust the Father's shepherding heart. He is good, He is wise, He is able. We are not alone. We are not at the whim of circumstances. We are not at the mercy of other people. The shepherd is alert, leading us through dark valleys and rushing waters in times of plenty and times of want. And the Spirit is attentive. He knows our pain and he knows God's plan and he will pray us safely home. Church family, God is not messing with us. No good father or mother brings pain unnecessarily. And even good, sinful fathers and mothers don't bring pain senselessly. We have a righteous Father in God who is bringing or permitting suffering for our good and for His glory. Present suffering, though, doesn't exist in the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, there there is no present suffering and neither is there present suffering in the final two chapters of the Bible because pain was not part of God's original creation before our fall into sin. And pain won't be part of God's new creation when sin and death are eradicated. There's no present suffering in original creation and there is no present suffering in the new creation. But in the now, present suffering abounds because we groan under the effect of sin in us and the effect of sin around us. And so when suffering inevitably comes, Romans 8 calls us to respond with faith. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Let your prayers be marked by humble trust. No matter how bleak No matter how hopeless, no matter how painful our circumstances are, Romans 8 calls us not to walk through them by sight. Your eyes will fail you. Look with faith, Romans 8 says. Walk by faith, trusting God's promises, relying upon God's word, depending on his spirit, trusting the shepherding heart of God, holding fast to God's people. This is what Romans 8 is calling us to. Romans 8.1 began by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He lived for us, died for us, and rose for us. And our faith in his work is the foundation of God's love for us. God loves us because we are connected to Christ. He foreknew us, he designed, he predestined that we would be conformed to him. And his covenantal love, his committed love toward us is grounded in the work of Christ and our connection to it by faith. That's why he's eternally committed to us. We are adopted as children of God. We are heirs with Jesus as our older brother of a future glorious inheritance. We are people of the future kingdom, people of the light who now live in a land of darkness. But present suffering can't compare to future glory. You can trust God to bring you safely home. You can trust the Spirit to pray you safely home. In Christ alone, we are alive. In Christ alone, we eternally belong to God. And we have the Spirit, we have the Father who are working together to bring us safely home. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ in suffering that you would keep our hearts dependent on the Spirit's help, that you would keep our faith trusting in your ability to work all things together for good. We pray that you would strengthen us through suffering. Help us to stand with one another through suffering. We look to you now, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.